I'm James Ashton, a financial journalist, commentator, and senior advisor at Portland. Today, I'm joined by Saul Klein, a technology investor at VC firm Local Globe and previously Index Ventures. He's backed a slew of British startup successes, including Love Film, Improbable, Transferwise, Zoopla, and Kazoo. Today, we're discussing how the UK stays on top of Europe's tech industry. This is To the Point. So, Saul, it seems to me that the UK tech industry needs great ideas, great people, and plenty of money for continued success. Is that the recipe, or are there other ingredients? I, I think those are absolutely sort of fundamental to to the success of any ecosystem. I mean, you know, I, I'd say the raw materials, obviously, of any great innovation ecosystem are, are ideas, and you know the people who who have those ideas and who are capable of of developing those ideas into you know something that is is practical and useful and and will serve meaningful social value and create great economic value so i think you know that the talents uh, and the people behind the ideas are absolutely fundamental but of course talent needs talent so founders need amazing talent to help them sort of build and scale those businesses it's a truism to say that you know great businesses are built by teams not by individuals but it's absolutely fundamentally true you know we typically have a a cult of the founder or or a cult of the ceo or at least we did do in the 20th century but you know those those other aspects are of uh, of, of capital uh, of customers and then also i think increasingly a policy environment that is supportive of, of innovation is also very very critical to sort of the, the long-term success of an of an innovation economy if you like mm. so uh, a record 15 billion dollars put into uk tech firms last year more than the rest of europe combined this is the, the deal room data yeah. does that mean the european competition has, has been fought and won or or can you never be complacent well, I think you can never be complacent, but um, you know, people in the in the tech industry talk about uh, network effects, and sort of great examples of this are obviously, you know, communications tools like Skype or WhatsApp or social networks, where the more people who who sort of cluster around an ecosystem, the stronger it, it becomes. And I think the UK. Uh, has arrived at this point, we sort of typically say it's taken us 20 years to get to the starting line. And now it gets interesting where, you know, when you compare the UK to the rest of Europe, as you said, you know, the UK has produced more billion dollar companies or unicorns in tech parlance than France, Germany and Sweden combined and more than double Israel, you know, which has an incredible output of, of tech companies. The UK has, you know, more venture capital goes into the UK ecosystem on an annual basis, again, than France and Germany combined. The UK has 2.9 million people working in the tech sector and over a million job openings in the tech sector. So, 
I, I think, you know, all of those factors compound to sort of make this very, very kind of liquid, effective ecosystem, which at this point, after the Bay Area and, and Beijing, is, is arguably the third best ecosystem for innovation globally. I mean, or at least, you know, it's kind of neck and neck with the sort of New York, Boston, D.C. corridor. And, you know, we talk about an area of a four-hour train ride from King's Cross. We call it New Palo Alto. <laughs> and New Palo Alto has 41 million people, has 120 unicorns, and, you know, has over $120 billion of annual IT spend from the, the Forbes 2000. So, you know, this is an area that encompasses, obviously, not just London, Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol, Manchester, Leeds, but also, you know, let's remember that Paris is a shorter train ride from London than Edinburgh. And actually, Amsterdam is a shorter train ride from London than Edinburgh. So this area of New Palo Alto, which takes in Amsterdam, Brussels, and Paris, as well as the UK, you know, we see even today, as an ecosystem that can coexist alongside the Bay Area and Beijing. But at the same time, you know, I think your question about can we rest on our laurels? Absolutely not. Because unless we keep developing some of the key aspects of the ecosystem where we're still behind the curve, you know, we're not either going to retain our position or arguably, you know, we, we can be number one or two here, not just number three. And that's what I was going to ask you. What, what is, um, whether it's London or the UK, and you define the new Palo Alto now, where should our am- ambition lie? So, so often the question is, how do we catch up with Silicon Valley? How do we create the next Google? That seems to me that the wrong question to ask. What, what, yeah. what I observe is this very this very rich scene, startups across transport, energy and education, loads of unicorns, as you say. It's broader than it is tall. Yeah. So where does the ambition go from here? I think that's a it's a great point. And I mean, you know, one of the things that we talk about and is we look at sort of the Internet in a sense as being in two phases. You know, phase one, if you like, was, you know, what we could call the discretionary Internet. The, the big companies that got built in the discretionary phase of the Internet were often media and entertainment businesses. The media businesses, and I would include Google and Facebook, you know, in in this cohort, rely on, you know, traditional advertising model to support their businesses. And while, you know, we love Google and actually it's a profound utility, you ask yourself the question, do you need Facebook? Um, And then if you look at some other very big companies that are discretionary, like Spotify or Netflix, you know, we love music, we love entertainment, but, you know, do we need that? So to to me, those would be companies that were born in the discretionary age or represent discretionary spend. And what we think is so interesting, which is why we say the next 20 years is more interesting than the first 20 years, is this non-discretionary phase where the internet and sort of transformational technologies like cloud computing, mobile computing, and then new technologies like AI, genomics, distributed ledger technology, otherwise known as blockchain, um, space, 
mixed reality, robotics, I mean, the list goes on. Each one of these technologies is changing radically as, quite frankly, as just, you know, the internet, industries that are much, much bigger than entertainment, like transport, like food, like clothing, aka fashion, um, energy, finance, and, and each one of those industries is orders of magnitude bigger than entertainment. I mean, just to put this in numbers for your listeners, you know, if you think about it, if you buy Spotify and Netflix every year, which, you know, I would admit to doing, you're spending around $300 a year. If you want to go to work in central London using public transport, not private hire, public transport, it's $3,000 a year. So arguably that means the, the business or the economic opportunity in public sector travel is 10 times bigger than both Netflix and Spotify put together. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I think people were astounded or taken by surprise at how big, how quickly companies like Uber and then Bird, you know, and Lime in the e-scooter business became. Because when you look at a sector like transport that is non-discretionary, people talk about universal basic services, UBS, mm -hmm. not the bank, U universal basic uh -huh. services, not just universal basic income and transport is increasingly certainly for urban dwellers a universal basic service and arguably it's yeah. even more of a basic service if you live out in the country because you know if you need to get to work at a hospital and you live in a rural place your transport options other than a car are very very minor mm -hmm. so i would absolutely agree with that and again we we think about a lot of these non-discretionary industries we think get built better in cities than in suburbs and you know palo alto and silicon valley um they're suburbs and you know there's nothing wrong with suburbs but it's very hard for example to build a world-class mapping product uh if you're at apple or even if you're in Google and you're based in Cupertino or or Mountain View, if you want to build a world-class mapping product about how to get around cities, like City Mapper has built, it's a lot easier to do that if you live and work in one of the mm. most densely populated cities in the world. You know, and and we think a lot of these innovations are going to come from cities, not suburbs. And when we talk about new Palo Alto, we don't just talk about a new set of industries. We think about a new attitude to, to innovation. And part of that innovation attitude, I think, is maybe more urban-led than suburban-led. Mm. But probably most importantly, you know, we think of this being an era of innovation that thinks about stakeholder capitalism, if I can sort of put it like that, in a different way. You know, the Silicon Valley mindset has been very much, you know, get big and think about founders, think about investors, but don't necessarily think about some of the other stakeholders and, and the consequences that your business will have to those other stakeholders. And I think this is why we see the regulatory scrutiny that we now see 
on some of these large tech companies. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of the companies built in in New Palo Alto will have much more mature and much earlier conversations with policymakers and will think about their stakeholders in a different way. Oh, I see. So just to draw you back to that question about ambition, Saul, if we're going into this non-discretionary world and now we here, here we are at the start of, at the starting line, are you saying that London, UK's ambition should be limitless? It's, it's, not, it's not too much to say that this conurbation, if you like, could, could eclipse the Bay Area at some point or is, it, is that kind of irrelevant? We just need to get on, get on with what we're doing. Well, I, I think it's, it's a bit of both, I would say. I think, you know, the ambition level can and should be incredibly high. There are more and more, you know, world-class companies, innovative companies being built and developed in this sort of new Palo Alto region. And what we see, and I've seen, you know, I've been doing this now for 20, 25 years, the evolution of the ambition of founders, you know, myself included. When I started Love Film, building a company that was going to be worth a hundred million pounds was like a really, really big deal. When we sold Skype, where I was a part of the early management team to eBay for $4.2 billion, that was a really, really big deal. And, mm. you know, it still is. But, you know, you talk to founders in Europe now and they can see Spotify and they can see Adyen and they can see Farfetch and, you know, they're, they're, the sites that they're there looking at, it's like, how do I build a yeah. $20 billion company? How do I build a $50 billion company? And all of this, it, it takes time. But I've seen just in the course of 15, 20 years, people's ambition level going from 100 million to a billion to 10 billion, now to 50 billion. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're absolutely have the ability to do to do that. That's not a, not a question. Mm. The question is, do we do it in the same way as was done in Silicon Valley? And on that point, I, I absolutely agree. We need to take what's unique about our ecosystem and, and sort of put a prince on the 21st century about how will we think about innovation. Mm. You know, there's lots to learn from Silicon Valley but there's lots not to learn from Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so to, to still standing at the starting line, I suppose, as you define it, we've talked about all that we've got here in London and UK um, in terms of the funding and the people and so on. But tell me about some of the things that um, that, that we haven't got. You've talked about policy and also these this one million of job openings is quite a uh, an eye-catching number as well. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think... Any successful economic ecosystem, you know, requires talent to grow. I mean, and this has been true since the dawn of time from agriculture through the industrial age to sort of, if you like, the innovation age. So it is a really good sign that there are way more jobs on offer than we have people to take up those opportunities. But what it means is that we have to look at skills, skills development, and, you know, some of that at, at every level, you know, f through the education system, i.e. through schools, through universities, but also, you know, how we retrain uh, and, and give, you know, more people in our economy the opportunity to work in, in the this sector. Because on average, when you look at how much people can earn 
working in the innovation economy or in tech, it's typically at least 15 to 20% more than they can mm. earn, you know, in another sector. But people don't necessarily think of tech as something that's for them. They think of tech as something, and we're very British about this, as for techies or for <laughs> people who, you know, are geeks or for people who, if you're looking at qualifications, people who've got, you know, computer science degree or did maths for A-level. And, you know, the reality is that at least half the jobs in tech are non-tech jobs. They're marketing jobs, they're sales jobs, they're finance jobs, they're legal jobs, they're HR jobs. And, you know, speaking as someone who did an English degree and has spent 25 years working in tech, you know, I can say from personal experience, tech is for everyone. It's not just for tech people. So I think mm. part of that is a state of mind, but it's that, that needs to change at all levels. We need to make this more inclusive than exclusive on the skill side um, and, and, and showing that these opportunities exist. And then on the other side, uh, around policy, I saw John Thornhill wrote a good piece in the FT about how government can play a constructive role in, in the tech economy. And, you know, the point he made, which I really agree with, is that, you know, the government can and should play a really important role or policymakers can, but, you know, it should probably be tactical and practical rather than mm -hmm. strategic and ad hoc. And, you know, some of the tactical things are, for example, making it easier for companies to share ownership amongst their employee base by looking at, say, the EMI scheme, which incentivizes employee ownership in companies, which means that everyone on the team has skin in the game and saying how can we expand that so we can make sure that when or if these companies do well you know the rewards are more widely distributed so i mean i think there are lots of practical policy things that can be done to sort of enhance and improve the innovation economy we're yeah. actually very lucky in the uk that you know for the last 20 years Downing Street and Whitehall has had a pretty open door when it comes to tech and innovation. And I've seen this through Tony Blair, through Gordon Brown, through the coalition governments. There was a bit of a hiatus with Theresa May and Philip Hammond because they were pretty busy with Brexit. But I think there's been a broad base of agreements across the political spectrum and for decades now that, you know, the UK has a real opportunity to shine when it comes to this area and it's good for for society because it creates jobs and i think you know maybe we'll get to the question of the capital markets sure it could be you know good for society in that it creates wealth as well and yeah. wealth that can be more widely distributed just briefly to close off on on talent so it, it feels like and, and you you addressed it at, at, at all levels it feels like computing in schools has got better um, there's more programming being taught and so on. But part of it, you suggest, is it's almost an image problem. You need to, which is, seems amazing because we're, we're living and breathing tech every day, but we need to get people more actively to choose that industry and for schools and colleges to, to really offer things much more broadly. And then I suppose that the secondary point to that is in terms of the flow of talent. I mean, we have had Brexit now. There is still a movement of people. There are visa schemes and so on. Yeah. But, but has it become harder 
because of Brexit? Look, I mean, just to take the Brexit question head on, I mean, obviously Brexit hasn't made that easier, but at the same time, you know, the government has always been clear, uh, even before Brexit, that, you know, the UK had one of the, and still has one of the most progressive sort of visa systems in the world when it comes to, you know, we're the first country in the world to have an entrepreneur's visa. You know, we have uh, a high-tech talent visa in tech nation. All of these things existed before there was an even a Brexit vote. Mm. And I think throughout, we, the government has been clear that the UK is open to talent coming in. I think what's quite interesting about COVID is that it's also sort of help people recognize that talent can be remote as well as in person. And that I think arguably massively expands the, the talent pool, not just internationally, but also nationally. There's no reason why, you know, people can't be hiring people uh, who, who live in Leeds or in Barnsley mm. or in, in Bristol to work at a company that's based in London. And, you know, we actually see more and more of that within our own portfolio. Um, so I, I think, you know, I'm not worried about the availability of talent. What I am concerned about is your point about, you know, have we done a really bad job actually selling the opportunity mm. and, and making people feel like this is not for me? Yes, I use Zoom, you know, I use Babylon, you know, all of the things we thought we would never use technology for or, you know, maybe in some science fiction movie like seeing the doctor or going to school or having all our business meetings, you know, we've somehow taken all of that for granted without saying, you know what, I could work in that sector. I could, you know, and, and I think this is a big challenge. And I think to me, if you like, this speaks to a little bit of the sort of the you know, if I if I don't want to be unkind about it, this of the British mentality of, you know, it's for them, it's not for me. Mm. And I mean to me this is sort of deep rooted in the British psyche is is this sort of this kind of sense of exclusiveness versus inclusiveness. And I think mm. we've got a big job to do at all levels of society, media, policy, mm. private sector, public sector to say, you know, tech is for everyone. You know, there's no reason. And by the way, your point about learning programming, you know, my six year old, you know, is, is a is a beneficiary of the fact that in the UK or at least in, in England, coding from year one is now part of the curriculum. But the important thing he's learning is not coding. It's what's called computational thinking. He's learning the concepts and the principles. But, you know, if he turns out that he doesn't want to be a programmer and he wants to sort of pursue you know, the arts or other disciplines, he is absolutely not going to be disenfranchised because, as I said, you know, tech is, contains all of these roles. And I think we have to do a better job of, of helping people understand that. Uh, and then the other thing is that, you know, very few companies really take responsibility for, for training. Training or learning and development is, is an afterthought. 
for a lot of companies. In fact, it's so much of an afterthought that a lot of people, if they do have a training budget, they have a, a discretionary training budget and they say, you know, hey, Saul, hey, James, here's a thousand pounds or here's two thousand pounds. You you go figure out what you want to do. And in a sense, it's a, it's a bit of a cop out. Oh. The companies that have actually built amazing teams, take the Hot Group, for example. You know, the Hot Group went from 50 to over five now, I think 7,000 people building that organization initially, not just in Manchester, but outside of Manchester. Mm -hmm. And they did it. One of the reasons they did it is because they built in-house training programs and academies to recruit people straight out of university and said, you know, we're going to invest in your training. And it meant that, you know, they've got they had a 23-year-old who was running a billion-pound marketing budget mm, mm. because, you know, they invested in the training and people just aren't prepared to, to do that. And that's loyalty right there. Just going back to your son, I do, I do hope you, you won't begrudge him an English degree if he wants one. I'd encourage that. <laughs> Good. Look, you mentioned the Hut Group, and uh, I do want to ask you about um, capital markets, because I know this is something that you've uh, focused on and thought on for a while. Rishi Sunak currently um, consulting and considering lighter touch listing rules in um, in London. And I know going back to 2013 and before you worked on with the stock exchange on the high growth segment, um, which was a, a, an opportunity for founder-led companies to, um, to, to get onto the market. So there are ways of getting onto the market if you don't want to give away too many shares or voting rights and so on. But what's your view? Is now the moment to, to blow up the whole system? No, not at all. I mean, the ways to, I mean, I guess I've, I've got sort of two thoughts on, on this area. You know, one is around the capital markets uh, and how important it is or not for, for London to be a, a great capital market when it comes to the innovation economy. And, and to me, it's sort of t- connected to the second point, which is around institutional investors and asset managers. And, you know, one of the reasons I think it's important to improve the level of knowledge and understanding about how to value companies in the innovation economy and how to work with companies in the innovation economy is because, you know, what we've seen in the last 20 years is that to the extent that wealth has been created in the capital markets, and I'm talking about globally, not not in the UK, because as we all know, the UK has had the FTSE uh, and the LSE has performed shockingly, and maybe that's too kind a word in the last ten to twenty years relative, say, to the US markets or the or, or, or China. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, the fact that we don't have many innovation economy companies on our market. So, you know, the first thing I would say is that you know we need to recognise that tech or the innovation economy is a massive driver of wealth within the public markets. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett, who famously said, I'll never invest in a tech stock, his portfolio, if he hadn't been in Apple in the last 12 months, would be underwater. But, you know, I think he's made several billion on Apple just in the last 12 months. So there's the question of, do we want companies within that sector to list in London, I'd say yes. But more important to me is that 
we we have asset managers, people who are kind of, you know, managing, for example, um, I talked about my six-year-old son, our 14-year-old son, we started to put a small amount of money every month away for the child's trust funds that Gordon Brown put together, which is now sort of coming up to, I guess, 16 to 18 years. And, you know, you put that money away because, you know, the idea is that it will grow over time. It's not just about savings that will decrease over time and it'll grow over time because it's been invested by smart asset managers, in this case, Invesco, in the capital markets. Now, you know, I, I looked recently at this uh, trust fund and, you know, I thought, oh, well, 2020 was an amazing year for the capital markets. I'm, I'm sure the fund would have done really well in 2020 because, you know, not only was it hard to lose money in the last 12 months in the capital markets, if you were sort of following the innovation economy, whether you're Warren Buffett or Bailey Gifford or, quite frankly, you know, anyone who reads the FT uh, or the Sunday Times. But no, the Invesco and, you know, note the non-irony in the name of the fund, Perpetual Income Fund, uh, lost money last year. And when I looked into, well, you know, what is the makeup of the funds? 90% of the fund is invested in UK equities. And yeah, you know, the FTSE had a shocking year last year and then you know to compound the issue it's not like they were investing in innovation uk equities like Ocado, which is a global leader in robotics or asos which is a global leader in e-commerce or even new uk companies like the hut group or money supermarket or right move uh, and again this is a child's fund the number one holding was tobacco, mm. British American tobacco. <laughs> and then in the top five are an extraction company, you know, a gold miner, and then a French oil company. So the the exposure outside of UK equities was to a French oil company. Mm. So, I mean, to me, this example says everything I think is is wrong, both with our capital markets and with the sort of the, the institutional investors oh. who advise people who put money in ISAs or, you know, who are allocating pension fund money. And what, what concerns me is not do we tweak the free float level on the LSE? What concerns me is how do we educate asset managers and policymakers oh. that if we want normal people in the UK people who put their savings into ISAs, you know, people who delegate asset allocation to insurance companies and pension funds, mm. how do we ensure that the people who are making those allocation decisions and the policy decisions actually understand, you know, the global innovation ecosystem? Because, yep. you know, what what's happened is that families and their kids who are sort of blindly putting money through unit trusts and mutual funds, unless they're very specialist or smart, aka Bailey Gifford, mm. you know, have probably lost out. 
I get that uh, clearly, you know, fund managers can can take a, a a different view and be educated about the uh, the upside of some of these companies. And we do need more of these high growth innovation tech companies on the London market. What I'm curious about is, would it damage the progress of some of them to, for example, cede more voting rights when when they when they go public? You know, James, possibly not. But again, why should they do that if they can float in New York and not do that? Do you not risk a race to the bottom uh, if if everyone goes, the, the, there's no, I, I don't know. Look, people talk about the integrity of the FTSE 100. I'm interested in your view on that word integrity. Well, I, I don't know what the integrity, what we mean by integrity. If the integrity is like one of the lowest performing indexes in the world in the last 20 years, you know, go figure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I understand, but um, I suppose the way the way the investment world has gone with um, indexation and and passivity and so on is that there's there's such a demand for people that fit into f- companies that fit into certain pots into certain buckets that behave in a certain way, and I suppose the um, where the clash is is that a lot of these founder led companies. Um, with whether it's dual shares or golden shares or whatever, have been incredibly successful, but they don't necessarily conform. So it just seems this is where the clash is. Look, again, as, as, a, as an investor, and I don't mean just me, but I think if one is an investor, you know, one has to really sort of understand what are the goals and the objectives of the people who you are investing on, on behalf of. And I would argue if you're putting your money into an ISA or a mutual funds uh, or an investment trust, you're putting your money there because you want that manager to make you money. And those managers then have to take a view on risk. Mm. And, you know, different managers will take a different view on risk. But if you look empirically, every company that's been public in the U.S. since 1926 something like 4% of of those companies have created the vast majority of the returns, the vast majority of the returns, i.e., you know, this is about picking. It's not just about being passive, A. Mm. And B, when you look at the companies that have generated those kind of returns, going back not just to sort of Mm. Apple and Google and Tesla, you know, which is sort of, or Amazon, which is sort of the modern versions of that. If you look at Walmart, for example, most of them have been founder-led. I mean, mm. going back to Disney, quite frankly, mm. uh, going back to AT&T, going back to IBM, going back to Microsoft. And then you sort of ask yourself the question, if your goal is to generate returns, then, you know, one of the things that is at this point uncontroversially true is that founder-led and founder and companies that involve founders generate far higher returns than other companies. Now, if you are investing for growth, if you're investing for returns, you have to take that into account and your capital markets have to reflect that. Mm. I mean, Bailey Giffords, I think, took out, I don't know, well over 10 billion pounds this year from Tesla and they still retain half of their stake. And, you know, many people looked at Tesla in the last two years and said their founder is out to lunch. 
And Bailey Gifford looked beyond that and said, you know, this is a company that is doing something that is game changing. And one of the reasons it's doing it because its founder is incredible. Mm. Yeah. Yep. So that so that's the money, the founders, capital markets, and and obviously there is a hope that there's a more liberal regime that will be introduced. Just finally, really, what about um, I talked about people, ideas, and money. Where do the ideas come from? How do we um, breed an environment where people can have more ideas? And I think we're, we're going to get back to the British psyche here. Actually, have the confidence to to act on them and to strike out with something new. Um, look, I mean, I, I, I think the British psyche is amazing and world class. I mean, if you look at innovation, <laughs> not just like in the last 12 months, I mean, look at, um, you know, a company like Vaxitech that has spun out of the Jenner Institute in Oxford and has created, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine. I mean, mm-hmm. Look at Oxford Nanopore. I mean, these are just two Oxford examples, you know, that's created a pocket-sized DNA sequencer that was one of the first things in the world back in late January. uh, The CDC in China was using it in Wuhan to sequence the... um, the, the, the sort of the DNA of, of the coronavirus. So, I mean, there is no shortage of British in, ingenuity. And by the way, again, this goes back to Newton, literally, you know, yeah. Rutherford, Crick. I mean, you're right. There is it. You're right. I, there's ingenuity down down the down the centuries, not just the decades. But but so I mean, to me, that's just like actually part of the core DNA of, of, of Britain. But uh, and, and, you know, you add on top of that, you know, one of the core sources of, of ingenuity and intellectual property universities in, in New Palo Alto, seven of the world's, not Europe, seven of the world's top 30 universities are a four hour train ride from King's Cross. Um, it's not just Oxford and Cambridge, it's Bristol, it's Manchester, it's it's Sussex, it's Imperial, it's King's, etc. Uh, it's York. Um, so, I mean, that's amazing. But we still do a very poor job, I think, of of translate. I mean, the, the, the term of art, if you like, is translating those innovations into, you know, applied settings like, you know, where they have social or economic value. But at the same time, you know, and I think Vaxitech and the Jenner Institute is an amazing near-term example, is we're getting a lot better at this. And, you know, again, if if we can sort of do a better job of helping to unlock some of the entrepreneurial talent that is sitting inside of universities and and schools uh, and across the country, then I think, you know, the opportunities are are, are endless. And I mean, Wedgwood, Wedgwood was like the Steve Jobs of the 18th century. And, you know, it wasn't just because of pottery, he actually invented catalog marketing. Well, I never knew that. I mean, these are, we we live in an ingenious society. Yes. Um, uh, So we end each episode with the same question. The world is very busy and noisy. Where do you go? uh, Or what do you do when you need space to think? Um, I mean, I'm very lucky in that my wife, 20, 25 years ago, instituted 
you know, what I would sort of think of as lifestyle Shabbat. So we're Jewish and on a Saturday, you're not meant to drive, you're not meant to work, you're not meant to use your screens. And while I wouldn't say I'm orthodox or religious uh, in in the conventional sense, I've always found the fact that once a week I get off my screen, I don't look at email, I don't pick up the phone, I typically won't get into a car. You know, you take a walk, you spend time with your family, you read a book. And, you know, to me, that that means I kind of I have a holiday every seven days. And that that's really, you know, enabling for me. And, you know, I'm very grateful to my wife for for sort of opening my eyes to that. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Saul. Thanks, James. Great. All right. listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes on topics ranging from healthcare to leadership, which we'll be releasing over the coming weeks.